So this morning in Galatians 4, we're just going to be looking at the first 20 verses. So I always like to give you guys that because I've been in the pews before. Don't panic if I'm taking my time. We're not doing the whole chapter, okay? You're like, I got to get to lunch. I got to get to Texas Roadhouse, right? Okay, we'll get there today. Don't worry. But we're looking at the first 20 verses and we're just going to see two big things today. We're going to see redemption in verses 1 through 7. In verse 8 through 20, we're going to see a regression. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. We see the redemption as Paul starts to talk about this. It says, chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, it says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So I'm going to pause it here because when we jump into Galatians 4, this is one of those sections where like, this is kind of a weird chapter break. It picks up with him talking about heirs, right? The, 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 those that are awaiting an inheritance. But it's picking up a dialogue that began in chapter 3, verse 26 through 29. And in that section, Paul was explaining that all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, that's how you become a son. If you believe by faith, we're told that in John 1, 12, as many as received him, speaking of Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So it's declared in the Gospel of John. It was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. We've seen that Paul used things like Genesis 15, verse 6, where he says, Abraham believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He keeps saying that came long before circumcision. It came much longer before the law. He says 430 years before the law was given, he mentioned in Galatians 3. He says the reality is it was always meant that you would come in and receive righteousness and the inheritance of God by faith. Because let's be clear, there are people this morning that may be doing honorable legal things. What I mean by that is maybe they go to church. Maybe they even observe the Sabbath the way the, old, the, the, the Jewish Judaizers might say you needed to. Maybe they're keeping every speck of the law as much as possible. But if they don't have faith... In the God of the Bible and the Son, Jesus Christ, who came and died up for their sins upon that cross, those works are worth nothing, amen? Works apart from the grace, no. That can't save you. And Paul was saying the way you become a child of God. These Judaizers are saying you're not in all the way until you've kept the law. Paul's already shown how ridiculous that is. We know in Romans 3.20, it says, by the deeds of the law, by the works law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For by the knowledge of the law is the knowledge of sin. When you study the law, you realize, man, I'm a, sin, I'm a sinner. I'm convicted by the law as a transgressor. The law actually did not serve to save me. It revealed that I needed a Savior, amen? And when I understand I need a Savior, and God gives His word that He will provide a Savior, my faith in His word is actually what brings me into the family of God. <laughs> And we need to understand that Savior, as we're going to see in this section, is Jesus of Nazareth. He came in the flesh, adding humanity to his deity, but he is God the Son. And he came, he died for our sins, he rose again to prove that he is the Son of God, as Romans 1.4 says. And see, in this section, Paul is trying to say, look, you have these guys coming in, telling you you have to add all these things. Remember, Gentile people, they were not Jewish people, generally speaking, in Galatia. And these Jewish men came in and said, Paul didn't give you the full gospel. 
until you carry the yoke of the law upon your shoulders, you're not actually yoked up with Jesus. That's not scriptural, amen? <laughs> but see, what we, we have here in verse 1 through 3, Paul is talking about heirs. The, the word here in the Greek is kleronamas. It means one who receives by lot. And see, that, that's a good term, right? The idea that, man, I'm going to give something by lot. I've chosen someone, I'm going to give it to them. You see, this spoke of a relationship of, man, you're going to receive this because you're in the family. <laughs> you're in the line. It's not based upon what you've done with works. It's based on the fact that you've been brought in. And if faith brings you in, you become that heir. And he says, as long as he's a child, though, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. So you may be inheriting some rich man's kingdom as a child of this rich man, right? But if you're a little child, they would put guardians over you, as verse 2 says. They would put stewards over you to make sure for a couple reasons. That you wouldn't first destroy yourself and never get the inheritance. So let's make sure you know how to live uprightly. Let's make sure you don't do wicked things. But also that when you come into the inheritance, you might be able to live in a way that is a blessing. That you would actually use the inheritance for what it was intended for, rather than spoiling it, wasting it, using it for problematic things. And see, what Paul says is, look, at when you're an heir, when you're the one that's going to receive, but when you're a child in immaturity, you need a steward and a guardian. He says, and really, in that case, they may as well be a slave. Because <laughs> the slave who doesn't have the inheritance is out here having to answer to everyone, has to abide by the rules of the master. But at some point, that child, which is interesting, uses this word, nepios. It doesn't just mean a minor. Paul's using the word that can point to an infant. <laughs> And he's saying, man, it's almost like spiritual immaturity, just absolute immaturity on the part of the Galatians. He says, you guys are heirs, but if you try to put yourself back under the law, it's like you're being little babies again. <laughs> and you need, that thing's not for you. It's for little ones, and it's as if you're a slave when you come into that thing. And see, it's interesting because we have to remark that there's a benefit to the law, amen? It is important, it's glorious, and it's beautiful. Paul talked about this. We've already studied this. The law was important, again, to show us what is right, to show us what is wrong, to limit the transgressions we might commit if we didn't know otherwise. But we look through Scripture, and there's times when things like this are very helpful. I think about 2 Kings 11 and 12. There was a baby that was the heir to the throne named Joash. And his grandmother, I believe it was, Athelia, if I remember right, she wanted to destroy everyone so that she could have the throne. And she wiped out everyone except baby Joash. And Jehoiada, the high priest, who was a good man, says, I'm going to take Joash, I'm going to take him, I'm going to hide him away, and I am going to protect him and preserve him until he matures and can be the king that he's supposed to be. And see, in that, we have an Old Testament picture of kind of the idea that we're talking about here. Jehoiada was a blessing to Joash. We're told specifically in 2 Kings 12, 2, it says, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. When you have someone teaching you, hey, this is true, this is right, that is a good thing, amen? Do not think that you are going into the kingdom because you did the right things and being a good little boy or a good little girl. <laughs> But you see, the beauty that comes is when you put your trust in the Lord, you're no longer a slave to the law. The law has done its purpose. The elements of the world, so to speak, to say, hey, this is right, this is wrong, generally speaking, that come from the moral compass that has been ingrained in man, those are good things. But when you come into Christ, it doesn't mean that you put those things off like you don't observe them anymore in the sense that murder is still murder, amen? <laughs> 
You shouldn't, do I have to put this out there? You shouldn't be killing your neighbor now that you came to Jesus Christ. <laughs> you should be loving your neighbor. <laughs> Matthew 22, 37. And we're doing that through the power of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5. That joy, that love, that peace, that kindness, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all these things that come out of the Holy Spirit. This is what is now enabling us. The law could never enable us to love our neighbor. It told you don't kill your neighbor because it knew you were wicked. <laughs> the Holy Spirit says, no, look, still don't murder them, but now go love them. And see, it doesn't mean you put those things away. You were trained up in what was right. And for Joash, he was trained what was right so that when he came into that spot of inheritance, he was able to be a good king. Very rare in Israel and Judah, right? If you read the history, the reason he did this is he was raised rightly. Praise the Lord for that. The Lord was with him. But then Paul takes all of this, this talk of an heir versus a slave, and he applies it to the Galatians in verse 3. He says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. I think this is important. I've had this conversation multiple times since we began the book of Galatians. People will say, well, wait a minute. You're teaching this to people in 2023 that were never under the Jewish law. Why are you trying to warn them not to go back under the Jewish law? They were never cursed by the Jewish law. Can I be clear? There is a law that is the moral law of God that much of the world, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, has actually esteemed what is good and what is bad. Think about, again, murder, real basic one. Thou shalt not kill. This was a command of the Lord, amen? Do you know almost every, at least in the research I've done, almost every tribe, every group, everyone, everywhere understood that there was a value to life and it's wrong to murder? Who put that there? The Lord. <laughs> when he made you in his image and gave you a moral compass, amen? Now, also in the world, before we were ever maybe, maybe we never heard of a Jewish law or the law of the Bible or anything, maybe you tried reaching out to God through the basic principles of man. Let me give you a really common one that I had a conversation with a friend this week about. How many of, here, of you here have heard about karma? <laughs> karma. If I do good, I get good. If I do bad, I get bad. We can understand why we hear that and almost believe that because much of our life is kind of that rewards benefit thing. When you do right, you get something good. and you don't do it, you don't get it. That has infiltrated our thoughts on grace in a way where we go, man, since I messed up today, God now hates me today and he wants to destroy me. Can I tell you, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, according to 1 John 1, no, 2, 1. We have to remember that there is forgiveness and grace and mercy, but we do not want to trample that forgiveness, that grace, that mercy. We're told that Hebrews 10, 29, don't insult the spirit of grace. There's this balance. We understand we're not walking after the law for, for righteousness' sake. But see, all these things in the world, we used to try to reach out to God through doing whatever works man told us was the right thing to do. Whatever virtue signal someone told you to do, that might make you right with God today. I've told you my favorite one. I'm going to say it again. Someone told me why I'm going to heaven. Someone said, oh, because I give my blood. I donate blood. What? That's crazy. That's a good thing. I'm not knocking that. But do you know that it's not your blood that's going to save you. It's the blood of Jesus. Amen? <laughs> and people get this idea, if I do good things, that's going to make me good with God. And he says, no. He says, that's the way we used to live. You Galatians, you used to take offerings to these gods that would throw lightning bolts in your history, in, your, in your, your false god history. You used to study these things. You would try to appease the gods, not get destroyed. He says, this is not the God we serve. 
The God we serve is a God that calls you in to be a child, to inherit His kingdom. He says, when you understand that, why would you put yourself back under these elements of the world, which is interesting. When he says the elements of the world, it's not just the Jewish law. I have to stress this. It's things like karma. It's things like, oh man, I got to keep this part of the law. Someone told me I can't do this. I must do this thing. Man, you need to, if it's not a black and white area in scripture, I'll tell you where to take that. You take that to the Lord in prayer. And I will tell you, the Holy Spirit will convict you in the things that are not liberties for you. Amen? There are some people that have liberties I don't have. I understand that. I think there are things that come with position that do away with some liberties. I will tell you as a pastor, I don't drink. I don't touch the stuff. I have had to be careful to preach in the pulpit that if you drink, you're like a sipping saint, right? Right? Yeah? So you're like, oh man, he hates us. No, I'm just telling you from my position, my personal you know, conviction, I can't touch the stuff. Would I encourage someone to go start drinking? No. <laughs> now, am I going to tell you if you drink, you can't go to heaven? I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you seek the Lord. Does that make sense what I'm saying right now? This is an important one. I've heard for years, if you drink, you ain't, a, you ain't really a Christian. Don't hear me as saying I'm promoting drinking. It's, it's hurting me as a recovering legalist to even say this out loud, okay? But I'll tell you, I've never heard a good star, story begin with, man, started drinking. <laughs> That's not a good way to start your Christian story, right? I'm so glad I picked up the bottle. But you know what I have heard? I've heard people lose their position in the church because they're swerving all over the road because they drank too much. I've heard people lose their position in the church because they can't handle the liberties they thought they had. And what I'm talking about is understanding that you are not saved by those things, but please be wise in the way you live. <laughs> you're called to be a shining bright testimony of Jesus Christ. And see, when you understand that, you're not saved by those things, but you want to walk in those things, but you need to realize there are people telling you, unless you do X, Y, and Z, you're not really saved. Let's stretch it beyond a liberty. There's a group called the Seventh-day Adventists here in town. They would say, since you don't keep the actual Sabbath, which they say is still Saturday, if you don't keep that day, then you're not really with us. You're not really part of the true church. And if someone came in today from their group and started teaching someone that was maybe a new believer, maybe they would take that and go, man, i got to do those things or I'm not on the right side with God. Now, you'd have to show me the scriptures of where that would be, how we work that out, and I love it. Do you know that Jesus reaffirmed all of, the, all of the Ten Commandments, but with the Sabbath, you know what he said in regards to the Sabbath? He affirmed it, but he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Let me tell you what that means. You should absolutely have a Sabbath that means you are rejoicing in who the Lord is and you remember His holiness, amen? If you think you can't pick up a certain amount of grapes on the Sabbath without offending God, you've misunderstood. I'm talking about real things that are being practiced. Even in Jewish culture, on a Sabbath day, you can't push the buttons on an elevator to go up to a level. That's work. God will be mad if you push the buttons. So they program the elevators to stop at every floor on the Sabbath day. Do you know what kind of bondage and yoke of heaviness that brings when you fail that law? The condemnation that comes, let me remind you in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is conviction. The Lord's going to guide us into what's true. But condemnation, that's of the enemy <laughs> once you're in Jesus Christ. If you've put your trust in the Lord, you know that you are inheriting the kingdom. Colossians 2.8 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. This is always a game of the enemy. Let me get you to put your trust in something other than what Jesus Christ has done. 
whatever your good work what might, might, uh, might be, whatever that religion that's being promoted, whatever workspace theology, we add things all the time. Sometimes we get sloppy and take things away. Man, trust in the word of Jesus and the testimony of Jesus and the life, the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? See, we're told in Colossians 2.20, it says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? <laughs> Man, people can lay a trip on you if you don't know it, that the completed work is in Jesus. But respond to it accordingly. <laughs> Walk after it, follow the Lord. And when we consider the blessedness of the fact that how we got delivered from this, take a look at when we got delivered from this law, so to speak. Look at verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. <laughs> If I would have just waited a week, I could have maybe taught this as a Christmas message, right? Like, look at what this says here. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. <laughs> Isaiah 7.14 said that God was coming in Emmanuel. We know that Isaiah 9.6, as we studied last week, that He would be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It all looked towards Jesus coming. But you have to understand that was prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus. That there was a prophecy even in Genesis 3.15 that when sin had occurred, God said, man, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And you may bruise his, his heel, but he's going to crush your head. This was a prophecy that the Messiah, that the Lord was coming to do away with the kingdoms of darkness. <laughs> To, to take care of sin, though sin had been covered under the law, Jesus Christ came and removed it. Amen? But see, when the fullness of the time had come, the word for fullness here, it means completeness. It's pleroma in the Greek. It means that God had a perfect time and a perfect plan for when he was going to send his son. Have you ever had the thought, why didn't Jesus just show up right after Adam and Eve sinned? <laughs> Why didn't Jesus show up, you know, when Isaiah was prophesying, or Daniel, or anyone else? God had a perfect plan in mind. <laughs> he has timing, and it's been said, he's rarely early and never late. <laughs> Meaning in our terms, man, we don't understand sometimes. But the Lord has a perfect plan, and when it was the right time, he sent his son. And it says, he sent his son born of a woman. Think about what that stresses. That stresses that he is both deity, because God sent his son, but also born of a woman, humanity. This is important because if Jesus doesn't put on flesh, we talked about it last week, we don't have a human brother upon the cross that's taking on the sins of mankind. There was a movement called Gnosticism in the time of the writing of the New Testament that said Jesus must have just been a spirit. There's no way he could have lived perfectly because the flesh is wicked. The problem with that is now we don't have a fleshly man going upon the cross dying in the place of a fleshly person. We needed this, a perfect sacrifice, the sacrificial Lamb of God, as John 1.29 says, to take away the sins of the world. And the plan of God was that the Son of God would put on humanity, humble himself, and lowly come, be born to a woman, born under the law. That means that Jesus was expected to live according to the law. Now, let me be clear. Does that mean the law that the Pharisees decided in themselves? <laughs> the man-made things? Absolutely not. Jesus just called them out on all of their wickedness. 
he healed a man on the Sabbath and they were mad about it. And that's when he said, look it, do you think the Sabbath is, that man was made for Sabbath? No, the Sabbath was made for man. This, the, the, the thing that needs to be fulfilled is the fact that we can live it perfectly, that the perfect sacrifice would go. We cannot do that. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3.23. Amen? Every one of us. But Matthew 5.17 says that Jesus came not to destroy the law or the prophets. You know what he came to do? Fulfill it. <laughs> he fulfilled it. Do you know what that means? It's fulfilled. I don't know how to express that better than that. <laughs> Jesus, you can never beat Jesus at his words, by the way. He fulfilled it. <laughs> what am I trying to fulfill now in the law? When Jesus said to Telestai upon the cross, paid in full, it's finished. Was that like 90% paid for? Maybe 75%. I had to do a quarter of the work, man. No. <laughs> he paid it in full. Amen. We start adding things to the cross. Now, let me be clear. There was a thief upon the cross next to Jesus. And he turned, he repented and said, I believe upon you. And Jesus told him, today you'll be with me in paradise. You want to measure the works of the guy on the cross next to Jesus? <laughs> he had nothing but faith. But let me flip it to you. <laughs> We're not busy dying on a cross literally right now. You have life to live. I hope that you're living out the faith that you're professing. Amen? You are saved by faith, by grace, but you should now be able to walk as Matthew was called by Jesus. He said, come and follow me. Matthew left it all. He said, I will go where you go. When Peter's standing with Jesus in John 6 and everyone's departing from him in John 6.66, interesting verse number, by the way, everyone's leaving Jesus in 6.66, that's kind of weird, but 6.68, here's Peter telling Jesus, where could I go? You're the one that has all the words of life. I, when we have life in Jesus, it's not to live unto ourselves, it's to follow Jesus Christ. Amen? Why is that? Because He redeemed us, according to verse 5, He redeemed those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is incredible. That word redemption, to be redeemed, <laughs> what that has to do with here, I'm going to give you the exact word. It's exagorazo. It means to be purchased from the slave market. <laughs> I don't know what you were enslaved to before Jesus Christ came. Maybe it was religion. Maybe it was the basic principles of this world. Maybe it was your own fleshly ways. Can I just remind you that Jesus redeemed you out of that? He bought you out of that slave market. And now you don't have to serve that master anymore. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Take off the prison clothes. Put on the robes of righteousness. But now you don't have to serve him because you're enslaved by, you know, you, you respond out of love. You say, I'm going to follow you because you redeemed me. Amen? I want to be with you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your willingness to come to die in my place as Isaiah 53, 5 prophesied. It said, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace would be upon Him. And see, Jesus came and did that, and we're told in Ephesians 1, 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And see, again, if you've been adopted into the family of Jesus Christ, you have that banner over your head that says you belong to King Jesus. Amen? I don't know how many of you have ever had a, maybe a family environment like this, but, you know, where your kid tries to do something crazy, like, hey, we're, we're, we're the Joneses. We don't live like that. Like, you've got to hold up the family name, so to speak. You ever heard that kind of talk? We have King Jesus' name over our head. We've been redeemed. There are now things that we say, man, I don't do those things anymore. <laughs> I've been called out of those things. 
We're told exactly what we were redeemed for in Titus 2.14. It says, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. <laughs> you guys remember this, right? When you came to Jesus Christ, everything changed in your life. The things that you used to enjoy doing in your flesh, you said, man, I can't commit these things the same way I used to. Can't say you can't. <laughs> I know you probably tried. But when you did, you were like, ooh, this doesn't feel right anymore. Why is that? Because you're no longer under this system of slavery. You've been bought out of these things. Don't go back to those things, amen? Live after the Lord. Live zealous for good works. And you might say, well, how do I know that this has occurred to me? Look at verse 6 and 7. It says, and because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. <laughs> Amen? You know what this is saying here? Is that you might say, well, what's the litmus test? How do we know that I have come to Jesus Christ in sincerity and in truth? We're told specifically in Romans 8 9 that you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Now you might say, well, okay, what does that look like? We're told in 1 Corinthians 3.16 that you become the temple of the living God because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. <laughs> That's radical. <laughs> There used to be this temple that was oh so holy to everyone. And now the Lord says, after the cross, after the resurrection, I'm going to give you the Spirit. And it's going to dwell in you. We're told in Acts 2.38 that it's a promise of God to everyone who believes you receive the Holy Spirit. Peter proclaimed that. We're told in Ephesians 1 that it's the seal, the guarantee that there is an eternity awaiting for you. But I will tell you, if you've been doing religion your whole life, you might say, man, this sounds really weird, this guy in this flannel talking about being indwelt by a Holy Spirit this morning. <laughs> if this is foreign to you, you may know religion. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're going to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Amen? And when you have that Spirit in you, it's beautiful. He goes from convicting you on the outside. We're told that the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8 was there to convict of, of sin, of judgment, of righteousness. But we're told later that, man, the Holy Spirit has come now. I believe it's in John 16, 18, that He's going to come and be that helper to abide with us forever, to help us. Think about what Paul is saying here. You used to be under the basic elements of the world, just condemned by the law that told you what not to do. Now you have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling in you to lead you into all truth, to guide you, to produce the fruit of the Spirit, to do the things He made you for. The law cannot compete with the Spirit. Amen? You never knew that you were a son of God because you failed the law. If anything, you were like, man, I, can't, I, I have no business being in this relationship. But in the Holy Spirit, when you believe by faith, He shows, no, you're mine now. <laughs> I've given you my spirit. And you can cry out. Did you notice this word? Abba, Father. An Aramaic term, and many of you have probably heard this before. The best word we can compare it to, I, I don't know if I use this word, but it's the best we can compare it to relationally, is going from calling someone your father in a very formal sense to calling him daddy. There's this relationship, this personal, warm, intimate relationship that's there that says, man, you're my dad, right? Good morning, father. Very formal. <laughs> hey, dad, right? It's this relational thing that's there. And it says, because the Holy Spirit's there in your heart, you're able to cry out and he hears you. He hears the prayer of the righteous. We, we've told that in Psalms and Proverbs over and over. 
He hears you and He wants to help you. The Holy Spirit, God, in the third person indwells you and guides you into truth to prepare you, to refine you, to use you for the glory of God. So what are we doing still doing the old things? Amen? <laughs> Step all the way in, moment by moment, saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Allow me to glorify you in all that I may do. And it's a beautiful thing because we're told in Hebrews 4.16, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And see, the presence of the Holy Spirit gives us the boldness to come to the throne. Say, Lord, I've, I've, I've fallen short. Forgive me. <laughs> to find grace. The Lord doesn't just forgive you, but he says, no, come on, and I have work for you to do. I have something for you to do in my kingdom. Though you are a broken vessel, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 7, I will fill you with the glory of my spirit, that you may know life and know it more abundantly, as Jesus said in John 10, 10. And see, he says in verse 7 again, he says, therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're going to inherit, what is it here? An heir of God through Christ. I don't know what things you would hope to inherit someday. I don't know. We all have the fantasy at some point of like, maybe there's some person I know nothing about who means nothing to me and they're going to die and leave me millions and millions of dollars. That would be really awesome. You're like, oh, and they'll have a race car and they'll have a mansion and they'll have this. Maybe they'll own a sports team or something. I don't know. Like you have, there's these things, these fleshly things that we want to inherit. <laughs> this says when you have the Holy Spirit, it shows that you belong to God and if you're a son of God, you're going to inherit something. What are you inheriting? Not just the kingdom here. You're inheriting God. Is that like a shocking statement to any of you? I had to reread that a couple times this week and go to the original language. Like, what is this saying? We are going to be in the midst of God for eternity. That is better than any other thing you could ever wish and hope for. And you know how you get it? It says at the end of verse 7, through Christ. Through works? No. Through Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, we will inherit eternal life. We're told in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but has everlasting life. Jesus said in John 5.24, He says, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. You're going to inherit eternal life with God because of what Jesus did. Amen? That should make us very excited. It should remind us at Christmas season why we celebrate that Jesus came in the first place. Because if Jesus doesn't come, He doesn't live the perfect life, He doesn't live the perfect life and die in our place, we can't go to eternity. We can't go inherit presence with God to be with Him. And what a blessing that we have that through Jesus Christ. And that's everything that has to do with redemption but remember, the issue of this letter is the fact they've been turning to legalism. And now Paul addresses the regression into legalism. Look at verses 8 through 11. It says, But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. So remember, this is the heart. I love how Paul does this. He says, I'm going to remind you of the blessed, glorious gospel that you were saved through Jesus Christ. But he says, let's get back to the issue. You have turned anew, it would say in the Greek. You have turned back 
to these things that are so, not just elementary, that can have to do with that, but they're, they're opposed to the gospel of grace in the way that you're trusting in them for salvation. And see, this is important because he says, look it, when you did not know God, you'd served things that aren't God's. I can understand that because you didn't know God yet. It would make sense that you would want a system based on your merit, on your works, because you didn't know who God was. You didn't know the gospel. He says, but now, after you have known God, and I love this, says, or rather, should I say, are known by God. I think that's kind of awesome, because I think there are a lot of people, if you went around today and said, hey, do you know God? They could probably give you an answer on who they think God is. Maybe it's Jesus is their homeboy. Maybe Jesus is the angel, you know, Michael. Maybe Jesus is this, that, and the other thing. Do they know the God of the Bible? And here's the important thing. Does God know them? <laughs> and you say, well, God knows everyone. We're talking about that intimate personal relationship. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 25, he said there are going to be those that come and say, hey, look, we did things in your name, though. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You thought you knew me, but you're doing this in your flesh. You're doing this according to principles of man. You're doing this through religion and through all kinds of outside things. I never knew you. I will tell you, I've, I've stressed this over and over to you guys. I want to hit it for some of my maybe younger people in here. I grew up in the church, but I did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That made it really easy for me to live however I wanted and just cheaply call upon the name of Jesus when I sinned and continue to sin however I felt like. Let's make it clear, Jesus was not my Lord, I was my Lord. <laughs> but when I failed, I knew I needed a Savior, but I'd never come all the way in. But in 20, no, no, wait, what year was it? Give me a second. See, don't do drugs, this is what happens later. No, okay, 2008, 2008. <laughs> 2008, I come to the Lord. I almost said 2023, you guys almost would have got up and left. You're like, he's been in the Lord for a year? No, 2008. <laughs> I came to the Lord in all sincerity because as I sat in church for the first time, semi-forced, I don't want to get into all that right now, but basically I was doing a favor to someone, playing some music, and they're like, hey, it's weird you don't sit in the studies. And I was like, I guess I have to sit in the studies to keep this gig that has free breakfast. So I'll show up and sit in the studies. And Pastor Xavier Reese at Calvary Chapel, Pasadena, I thought for sure my dad had called him and told him everything I was doing. Like, there's no way this guy isn't talking just to me right now in this room. And every week I'd go and it was just hammering me. The Holy Spirit just convicted me. You do not know me. You need to repent. You need to stop doing this. And man, when I surrendered to that at the end of 2008, everything changed. Amen? You guys know this about yourselves. It became sincere. It became true. Because not only did you think you, know who, you knew who God was, but he now knew you in the sense that he gave you his Holy Spirit. And you belong to him now. Imagine, though, going from that and being like, you know what I'd like to do? Go back to a system of legalistic works now. Thanks, God, for the grace. But I'm going to make this better by doing like works. Keeping the Jewish law, in this case, in Galatia. And see, Paul says, how can you do that? He says, this is, this is wild. He says, you've turned to the weak and beggarly elements. Remember what Paul's talking about here, the Jewish law. He says it's weak. Now, again, he's not saying it's not good. He's saying, it's weak. And you would say, well, why is it weak? Because it did not provide righteousness. And why is it beggarly? Because it didn't offer an inheritance. It offered condemnation, amen? It accused you as being a transgressor. This is why Hebrews is such a great book. You read through Hebrews and you realize the law is beautiful, the law is great, but there is something better. And it is Jesus Christ, amen? Hebrews 7, 18 through 19, it says, There is an annulling of the former covenant uh, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. 
On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And it's speaking about trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, the mediator of a better covenant built upon better promises according to Hebrews 8.6. Jesus is who we trust in. I think it's interesting. He says, you guys are starting to observe things like festivals and feasts and days. He goes, you guys are Gentiles. These, these things, first of all, who told you to do this? It's the Judaizers, the Jewish men who said, unless you keep these things, you're not really saved. They're like, we're going to start keeping these things. You're serving them the same way you used to serve your pagan gods now. You think that if you don't appease God by keeping these things, he's going to wipe you out, but you're a son. You belong to him through Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul said in Colossians 2.16, he said, Let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Everything in there, all the holidays, all the feasts, you know who it pointed to? Jesus Christ. <laughs> he says, you have Christ, but now you're going to do the things that just they, they, they used to point towards the coming of Christ? But don't take that as Paul saying no one should keep any of these things. He says it's a matter of personal conviction in Romans. In Romans 14.5, he says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. This is where the liberty thing comes in. Amen? It's not just your mind. It's the fact the Holy Spirit is going to guide you and lead you in the things that you say, Man, I'm going to keep this thing. There are some people in this church that might say, This day or this thing is really important to me. That's great. Do it under the Lord. Amen? Glory, glorify the Lord in all that you do. Whether you eat or drink, give Him glory, according to 1 Corinthians 10.12. But there's a reality that if we say, man, if, if not everyone else is doing these things that the Lord's out of my heart, then you're not really saved. <laughs> we start to get on these legalistic trips. And this is what was happening. Legalism was creeping in. They were putting themselves under the yoke of bondage, putting others in, under that yoke. And that's why Paul says in verse 11, he says, I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. <laughs> Think about that statement. Paul says, I am afraid for you. Now, this is interesting because to me, Paul's salvation is not in play here, right? Paul's, Paul is a loving, caring shepherd. This is, man, I am losing sleep over the fact that you guys are going backwards and you're going away from the gospel of grace. The Judaizers, they don't lose sleep over the Galatians. These guys just want a following we're going to see in a minute. They just want people to worship them. Paul says, I love you guys, and as a good shepherd, as an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ, the true good shepherd, man, I am worried about you guys. I don't want you turning to these things. But look at what happened in 12 through 16. Paul's going to reflect here upon the former gratitude that the Galatians used to have towards him. He says, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You've not injured me at all. <laughs> you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. That's a big statement. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? <laughs> This is a wonderful section right here. Because I will tell you what Paul is doing here. He says, look it, I want you guys, first of all, he calls them brethren. I think this is great. It shows that he's not mad at them. He still considers them his brethren. That's important. Don't get so caught up in the, in the, in the frustration that you're saying, man, I hate you guys. No, no, I love you guys. I want you to come in as a father would counsel his children, as a steward would take care of that child that's going to inherit the kingdom. I am here telling you, please, guys, I urge you, become like me, 
because I became like you. <laughs> you know, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. I'm just going to throw it out there. Could you this morning walk up to a new believer and say, hey, just become like me. <laughs> imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's like, that's a high bar, is it not? It's a scary bar. But I love that Paul threw that clause in in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, as I imitate Christ. <laughs> Don't imitate me when I'm in my flesh, man. <laughs> But man, I, I desire that I would set an example. This is what good pastors should do. They should live after Jesus Christ and say, man, I hope I'm living out the things that I'm teaching. <laughs> Paul says, become like me because I became like you. There's two things that I think Paul's saying. He says, I became like you in my former life in the sense that I used to be an absolute zealous maniac for the law. I was the Hebrew of Hebrews, a strict Pharisee. And you know what I had to do? I had to come to Jesus Christ. And when I did, I became like you. Remember that the Galatians are Gentiles? <laughs> it's almost as if he's saying, you guys are trying to go back to the things I converted from. <laughs> and I kind of became like a Gentile in the sense that I didn't, the law wasn't the thing that was saving me. And you're desiring to be like what I used to be. Don't do that. He says, this is why I'm so pretty. But he says... <laughs> He says, you know, I'm sorry, right before that, he says, you have not injured me at all. People say, what does that line mean? And there's all kinds of theories on what he's trying to say there. I believe plain and simply, the tone of the letter so far has not included things like, hey guys, I'm so grateful for you. So thankful for what the Lord's doing in Galatia, like he does in every other letter. They may have opened this and been like, man, Paul's really mad at us. <laughs> Paul's being kind of harsh towards us. Parents in the room, is there not a time when you have to be harsh with your children? when they're absolutely about to destroy themselves. <laughs> you don't go, oh, you know, I'm going to wait for the right moment. I'm going to give them a real sweet tone as they're about to touch a hot stove. You're just like, oh my gosh, get out of here. And the kid might think like, what, are you mad at me? No, I love you, amen? <laughs> I'm trying to protect you. He says, I love you guys. You haven't injured me. He goes, as a matter of fact, he says, I think about the whole reason I came there. I had this infirmity. And we're not going to get into it, but this is kind of funny. You could do studies and studies and studies on what was the physical infirmity of Paul. Someone says, was it depression? Was it an eye injury? Because there's some talk about eyes here. Was it he was recovering from being stoned by, by the, that mob at, at Derby or Lystra? Is, is, is he recovering from these things? I love this old commentator said this. I forget which one it was. I've read a few this week. But one of them said, it's hard enough to diagnose a man that is alive, let alone a man that died 2,000 years ago. So in other words, you could spend all day, what was the thing? That's not the point. Now we do know that Paul had that thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, I believe it was, where he's praying three times, Lord, take this thing from me. And the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, then most gladly I would boast in my infirmities that the power, the excellence of Christ would rest upon me. So it's a good verse to remind us that there's not just automatic healing by faith. If, if that was the case, Paul should have known about it, I think. So Paul says, no, I'm praying. And the Lord says, no, I'm going to sustain you. It seems that that injury, maybe it was that injury, maybe not, I don't know, but the Lord allowed him to suffer sometimes to put him in a spot where he could minister to others. I don't know what you're suffering this week. I don't know what you're suffering in this season. You might say, I don't know why the Lord will won't take this from me. Paul was suffering something that brought him to Galatia, and it led to this great revival of him teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what they did. They received it so excited. He says, man, you guys received me like I was a messenger from God, maybe even as Jesus himself. <laughs> These guys were excited to hear the gospel. 
And you know what they did because of it? He says, you would have given me your own eyes if it would have been possible. These guys were so grateful for Paul and his ministry when he got there. That's what makes some people go, it was probably an eye issue. The end of the letter, he talks about signing with big letters like he can't see real well. Some people think that that might be the thing he was praying for healing from. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's been 2,000 years and we don't know what it is. But in this case, he says, you would have done that for me. I'm just going to throw this out there. I haven't been doing ministry, I think, that long. I've been doing like full-time ministry now for probably seven years or eight years. I don't know what the number is. We can figure it out again. Brain doesn't work every time. But I will tell you this. I have seen so many people that come into the church absolutely on fire when they get the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they go, this is just awesome. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Pastor James. Thank you at Pomona Valley. Thank you, Pastor Joe. Pasadena. Thank you, Pastor Xavier. And all of us all say the same things. We're about instruments, man. Like, that's the Lord. He's good. Praise the Lord. We're just teaching the Word of God. Amen? People are so excited. And they start out great. But then someone comes in, and they're like, oh, is that what they taught you? Oh, that's not actually the truth. They're teaching something that's wrong. You know what you need to do? You can come with me. I have the right answers. <laughs> come follow me. And see, Paul is saying here, he says, let me get this right. <laughs> he says, you at one time were ready to give your eyes for me, but now? He says, now it's as if I've become your enemy. And why? Because I tell you the truth? Legalism will not save you, Paul is saying. You're acting like I'm an embarrassment to you. He had to spend chapter 2 explaining his background and his, 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 basically all of his knowledge and who he was and his true standing in the church and in the faith because other teachers came along and said, that guy's not the real deal. Paul doesn't want to spend his time talking about how, how much he's qualified for ministry, but they forced him to do so because false teachers came in and said, oh, you can't trust that guy. You can't trust Paul. He's not like us. He gave up on the law. He left the law, but we're still in it, and it's important. And I will tell you, there are people that have left every church I've ever been at at some point. It's not the majority. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but there's always someone that comes in so, we call it burning real hot and cooling real cold. They come in so on fire. This is the greatest. I will give anything. I want to be here every service, every day. And then a the little bit of leaven comes, and leavens the whole lump. And in that sense, it's like, oh, man, you know what? I'm actually, you're not going into this thing enough for me. You're not doing this thing. This person told me that I'm watching on YouTube told me I need to be more about that thing. Like, what can I do to that? I'm not changing what I'm teaching. This is the truth, amen? We're going to teach what we teach, but I'm worried for you. Because if you're going to start chasing the principles and traditions of men, that's going to take you further away from Jesus. You need to trust in the Word of God through the power of the Spirit. I'm not saying that I know everything. Let me be clear. Do you hear that as humility, please? <laughs> but I'm telling you, as long as we teach the Word for what it says... I can have confidence that if you stay in the Word, stay in the Lord, you're going to grow, amen? And you're not here to serve me. Paul wasn't there because he was worried. He was worried that the Galatians were going to stop serving him or something. He says, no, I love you guys and I want to serve you. I want to lead you as a father guides his own children, Paul might say. But look at how he compares his intentions. This is where we end today, 17 through 20. He compares his intentions with the Judaizers. He says, they zealously court you, but for no good. yes. They want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always and not only when I am present with you. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. Do you hear the heart plead? Just the, the plea of his heart is, man, I love you guys like a father loves his children. 
my little children. I want you guys to know that I came to you and you received me and you loved on me. This was awesome. We did what we're supposed to do as the church. But at some point you feel like I'm an enemy because I'm calling you out for your legalism, for your turning into weak and beggarly things. And he says, the reality is I care for you. Those people that are coming to us, they're zealously courting you, but not for good. They want to exclude you. Let me tell you what this means. <laughs> They want to alienate the Galatians from Paul and from his gospel that they, the Judaizers, might build a following to themselves that would then be servitude towards the Judaizers. This is the way of religion and cults. I will be a leader and I'll get everyone to serve me. We talk about the false brethren in the, in the, the book of Jude. I think it's Jude 1.16. It says of false brethren, they mouth great swelling words flattering people to gain advantage. They come around and they say things like, hey man, anything you want, that's okay. You can still do that. You can still do this thing. Just come and follow me. Tied to me. Follow me. And when they get you under them, what they'll eventually do once they have you alienated is be like, now you have to serve me. You have to follow me and be like me in the way that I'm going to be your God. <laughs> and see, this is the stuff that Paul says, no, don't give in to this. This is the behavior of men that have nothing good for you. They're, they're, they're zealous for you to actually just serve them. And he says, but I'm telling you the truth. And see, that's interesting because it would be so easy. I told you guys this before. It would be so easy to grow a church by just preaching the sweet things every week. <laughs> Giving the fluffy TED Talks that everyone wants. <laughs> but when you teach the Bible verse by verse, I will tell you, you're going to hit things and you'll find out that you hit someone. They say if you throw a rock into a pack of wild dogs, the one that barks is the one that got hit, right? And when you come out on Sunday morning, you throw something from a verse and someone comes up afterwards, they're like, hey, why you got to pick on this sin? You're like, well, can I pray for that sin in your life now? Because I just found out what you're doing, right? It makes it so clear. I didn't have to go inspecting it. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God work together, amen? When you preach the truth, you're going to offend people sometimes. The, the deal is you have to respond and realize you're a sinner and God is holy. But he made a way for you to come into his family in Jesus Christ. You cannot attain righteousness through your works. These men are telling you you can because they want you to idolize them because they're better than you at it. This is legalism, by the way. We think we're moving up in the Lord when we start laying trips on people. Oh, I don't do those things. Please, you've left grace if you think that's how you're saved. In this letter, Paul says, you have fallen from grace. It is a fall from grace to move into legalism. Do not think you've just moved on to the PhD of faith by going into legalism. You've gone backwards to the things that will enslave you and are fundamental. Amen? And see, he's calling this all out because he says, these men, they don't have good intentions for you. But he does say this. He says, it's good to be zealous for a good thing always. <laughs> that means, hey, I'm not against zeal, Paul would say. But you're being zealous for the law. You're being zealous for these false brethren. Why don't you be zealous for the things I taught you that are true, the gospel of grace? He says, and I wish you'd be zealous for them even when I'm not with you. What that means is, man, they were spiritually immature. Because when Paul wasn't there with them, they were ready to give in to anything that someone brought in. He says, you're zealous for anything and everything. And that's what I've seen with people that burn real hot when they come in and end up cooling real cold. It's a season, it's a phase, it's a fad. And they didn't actually give their full trust to Jesus Christ, it seems. Because some other thing comes along, they're like, oh, now I'm hot for this thing. Paul says, I want you to be trained up in a way to where you can actually, hopefully, answer people like this. Point to Scripture why you are saved by grace through faith when I'm not around. <laughs> and he says, my little children, again, I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. What is the goal for Paul? <laughs> 
that they would look like Christ, that Christ would be formed in them. Again, imitate me as I imitate Christ because ultimately I want you imitating Christ, amen? This is the goal of the believer is that you would look more and more and more like Jesus with every day, amen? Now that doesn't come by living lawlessly. <laughs> that comes by walking in the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> come seeking after Jesus Christ, living as unto Him. And he says in verse 20, hey, I'd love to be with you and change my tone. But he says, at the very end there, he says, but I have doubts about you. <laughs> I think there's two things here. I think as a parent, as, as a good parent, all you want to do is be with your kids, right? You want to be with them. You want to pour into them. If they're out of line, you want to reconcile with them and bring them back into the truth. He says, man, I just want to be with you guys. I think that's so important. They might be thinking, man, Paul's really mad at us. He goes, no, I want to be with you. I would love to be able to change my tone and see that there's hope that you guys are going to continue in the right things. Return to the right things and walk in them. But he says, I have, I have doubts about you. <laughs> that's why you're getting such a strongly worded letter, unlike every other church. You're showing the fact that you will chase down any new fad thing that comes to you and you'll believe in it wholeheartedly at the abandoning of the ones that have poured into you, that loved you and cared for you. He says, I want to be with you again. And I think there's also an element where he's like, I also doubt maybe this isn't permanent. Maybe you guys will repent. I want to be with you. Love hopes all things. Amen? We should go into situations like this going, man, I'm going to preach the truth and hope that there is repentance. But I didn't understand everyone has a decision to make. Paul says, I have my doubts if you're going to turn. I have my doubts if you're going to be able to receive the fact that I'm calling you out for this. But nonetheless, I want to be with you and tell you. I want to change my tone. I love you guys. Amen? This is the heart of a shepherd. This is the heart, I believe, the heart of a pastor. I will tell you, we've said it before, and this is what I've been taught in ministry, and I believe it. If there's one or a hundred or a thousand here, we're going to preach the word to whoever's here. And we're going to call you to walk in obedience to it. Because we know that obedience, man, that's the joy of the believer. You know when you start walking out of sync with what the Lord has called you to do, it's not good for your relationship with Him, amen? Puts that void there. But man, today is a new day. Today, this is the day of the Lord, amen? <laughs> Repent. Get back in line and walk with the thing, in the things that the Lord has called you to do. And I'll tell you, it's not the things that saved you. The fruit does not save you. It's the faith that produces the fruit that saves you. And you say, how can I know I'm saved? Is the Holy Spirit producing fruit in you? Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are those things coming out of you because you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Or are you in a works-based theology relationship with God? I pray today you would trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Why don't you guys stand with me and we'll pray.